Hello and welcome to Esoterica and Nonsense, a podcast where we discuss myths, legends, folk tales, fairy tales, supernatural phenomena, and religions from around the world. I am your host, Annabelle, professor of bitchcraft and bitchery. And here we are commencing episode two. A little bit of background. I actually have been wanting to start a podcast for almost four years now. And actually, right before the pandemic started, I went on an insane Wikipedia tangent. It was days long. It was like probably like a, it was a five day Wikipedia tangent. And I don't even remember what started it, but, or why I started Googling specific things, but I do know what really sparked my interest and what really made the rabbit hole continue. And essentially what I had discovered was a Wikipedia page titled Cops. Now, it's not cops as in police officers. It is cops, C-O-P-T-S. And um, it blew my fucking mind. I felt cheated. I felt lied. Um, as an American, I felt, <laughs> I felt like I had kind of like actually misunderstood uh, and kind of drank the Kool-Aid of like how world history really went. And it led me into an insane rabbit hole of stories of the ancient world, of religions and how re- certain religions started. And it really just blew my mind. So essentially, once the pandemic started, I was already just spending my nights reading wikipedia rabbit holes but once the pandemic started i actually filled an entire huge notebook full of notes on gods goddesses obscure religions uh monsters demons mythological and and like just weird random things from any random culture and it was completely unorganized and um I, I I didn't really do it with any purpose other than I was so fascinated with these topics and I didn't really know how to remember all the information that I was consuming so I just wrote all this down and here I am um in 2022 and I realized that uh why not make a podcast about it? I I can talk. And uh, this shit is, is fascinating. So, cops, the Coptic people, um, it, it actually, cops or Copticism, if you will, actually refers to both a group of people. Um, it's an ethno-religious group, so it's considered an ethnicity as well as a religion and a culture. So now the word Copt refers to the ethno-religious group that is indigenous to Northern Africa and primarily lived in the area which is now considered modern Egypt and Sudan since antiquity. So these are the people that have native Egyptian and Sudanese blood. So these were the people that were actually living in ancient Egypt. Majority of people that are ethnically Copts are actually members of the Coptic Orthodox group. They are Orthodox Christians. And they are the largest Christian domination denomination in Egypt and the Middle East. So again, mind-blowing, the English language... Well, first of all, Copt, the Coptic language is also its own language. So it's the... It's the language that it derives from the ancient Egyptian language, but has also been influenced by Arabic due to the Arabic occupation of Egypt. So in the English language, um, the word Copt was adopted in the 17th century from New Latin, originally coming from the word Coptus or Coftus, 
which derives from the Arabic collective kubut or kibut, meaning the cops. So in the Coptic language, hutkapta, so it's like uh, hutkapta, hopefully I'm saying this right, I probably am not, PSA, but this phrase hutkapta literally translates to a state or palace of Ka. And in ancient Egypt, Ka referred to energy, ether, quite literally, quote-unquote, double spirit. But Ka was the intangible life force that we all are breathing in and are living. Our life force is Ka, but Ka can also be harness. So essentially, this word this phrase, Hutkapta, is the estate or palace of where Ka resides in Ptah, P-T-A-H. So Ptah is the Egyptian deity, creator, god, and patron of craftsmen, architects, and husband of Sekhmet. Sekhmet being the goddess of war and destruction and recreation. So essentially... Some people are thinking that this uh, this word, copt, actually does derive from the ancient Egyptian language of what they actually called their place of inhabitants, the, the palace of where energy um, resides, the energy of the creator god, Ptah. Ptah. Oh, I, I, I know for a fact I'm saying it wrong. Um, so in Greek originally... They referred to the Egyptian people as Aegyptos, Aegyptios, which came to designate the native Egyptian population in Roman Egypt as distinct from Greeks, Romans, or the Jewish population because Rome had occupied Egypt for quite a bit of time. So they had created the word Aegyptios to refer to the natives. And after the Muslim conquest of Egypt, which happened, the conquest began in 639, it became restricted to those Egyptian adhering to the Christian religion. So a native Egyptian that had converted to Islam would not be referred to with the same designation of either Aegyptios or as um, a lot of the Arabic population were calling them the Kubut or Kibut. The Coptic word, in turn, represents an adaptation of the Greek term for the indigenous people of Egypt, as I mentioned, Aegyptios. The term Aegyptios itself derives from the Egyptian language, but dates to a much earlier period, being attested already in Mycenaean Greek, pronounced Aikupitiho or Akupitijo, meaning Egyptian, but the term itself, by the way that it's spelled, is referred to almost like a man's name. So it's a masculine version of what they were calling the Egyptians. As I mentioned, historically, Copts actually spoke their own language, known as the Coptic language, directly descendant of the Demotic Egyptian that was spoken in late antiquity. Originally, as I mentioned, this term referred to all native Egyptians, but eventually it became synonymous with native Christians who were not converting to Islam and not, what's the word, participating in the Arabization of Egypt during the Muslim conquest that began in the 7th century. These days, the Copts in Egypt only account for about 5 to 20% of the Egyptian population. The exact percentage is unknown. And in Sudan, Copts only account for 1% of the Sudanese population. And in Libya, it's similar. It's about 1%. So before I move on, I never realized that the native people of Egypt were practicing Christianity while they were still colonized by Rome. So to put this into perspective, before Rome had legalized Christianity, native Egyptians, some native Egyptians, were actually practicing Christianity. And eventually when they were 
conquested by the Arab nations, they were still practicing Christianity. And uh, the plot does thicken. <laughs> Let's just say that. But I, um, I, I honestly, maybe I didn't pay attention in school, but I don't remember learning this in school. And um, <laughs> it gets even crazier. Okay, so basically, let's start from the beginning. So most cops, cops, I, oh, it's hard, it's hard for it not to sound like police officers, but I assure you it's not. But most cops adhere to the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria, which is known as an Oriental Orthodox Church. There's a part of me that feels weird using the word Oriental, but I guess uh, this is the this is the official term, so I am just observing and reporting. The smaller Coptic Catholic Church is an Eastern Catholic Church in communion with the Holy See of Rome. Other Copts belong to the Evangelical Church of Egypt, but majority belong to the Orthodox Church of Alexandria. The Copts are one of the oldest Christian communities in the Middle East. And more specifically, the Copts are actually one of the oldest Christian communities on planet Earth. According to ancient tradition, Christianity was introduced within present-day Egypt by Saint Mark in Alexandria shortly after the ascension of Christ and during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius around 42. So, I have heard different theories. Obviously, the specifics of Jesus Christ and his life are ambiguous. I should definitely do an episode about that. I've heard different theories, but I, I have heard that they believe the person who is called Jesus Christ was actually born in the year zero, which is kind of amazing because like the, the year zero actually is supposed to mark the year that he died, but apparently they historians believe that he was more likely born around the year zero and died around the year 33. He died at the age of 33, so somewhere in those years is what I've heard is estimated. So a mere nine years after that, if we're assuming that he died in 33 AD or CE as I think we're now referring to it as. In the year 42, nine years after, St. Mark went to Alexandria, allegedly, and and started speaking the words of Christ and spreading Christianity. So this was during the reign of Claudius, who is one of my favorite Roman emperors, but that is a story for another day. When the church was founded by St. Mark, he the emperor had been moved on to Nero. So a great multitude of Egyptians embraced the Christian faith. And at the time, the Greeks living in the area and the Jewish population living in the area were not embracing the new Christian faith. And so to kind of put this into perspective, St. Mark came over to Egypt around the year 42. And it wasn't until the year 313 that Rome legalized Christianity. And it was not until 380 that it became the national religion. So we're talking about close to 300 years, you know, 338 years until it became the national religion of Rome. So Egyptians were practicing Christianity basically from the jump. So um, St. Mark was allegedly said to have set up the Coptic Orthodox Church, also known as the Coptic Orthodox Patriarchate of Alexandria in 42, due to disputes concerning the nature of Christ. So essentially, Christianity had been spreading in other parts of the world, and Part of the reason of setting up the church was creating an established belief of what Christ really was and what Christ really preached. And I mean, I think that's still happening today. A lot of churches are establishing themselves to have a soapbox to explain exactly how they feel and explain exactly what really happened in Bethlehem. So the head of the Coptic Orthodox Church was known as the See of Alexandria or the Pope 
of Alexandria or the Holy Apostolic See of St. Mark. Apostolic? Apostolic? Pronunciation, please. The head of this church was known as the See and slash Pope. So the Pope, the term Pope was actually being used before Rome was had established the papacy. So this title referred to the man who carries the title, the father of fathers, the shepherd of shepherds, the immense, the you, wait, am I a child? I don't know this word. You can, you, you Oh no, you guys. Ecumenical. Ecumenical. Oh my goodness. Wow, well, I really fudged the bucket on that one. <laughs> Ecumenical judge and 13 among the apostles. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, I think the idea of this term, which is now known as the Pope, but the idea is that St. Mark was the first. He's the 13th of the apostles and is passing on the title generation after generation the shepherd of shepherds, the father of fathers. And the first see, the first pope, was in fact a priest of Alexandria, a member of the Coptic Orthodox Church. So eventually, fast forward a little bit, now as time goes on, Rome ends up legalizing Christianity. And again, when Christianity and specifically the Coptic people were starting to to worship Christianity. It was not legal yet in the Roman Empire, and when they began studying and practicing, they were part of the Roman Empire. But persecution against Christians was mostly happening closer to Rome. Um, Rome had expanded its borders so widely that I don't believe that there was as much enforcement over Roman culture in those areas due to just them constantly conquesting and not necessarily, you know, forcing others to fully appropriate to their customs. But as they expanded their borders, more people were moving to other parts. So there were a lot of Greeks and a lot of Jews in Egypt at the time. So eventually when, after Christianity became the official religion of Rome, less than a hundred years later in 451, there was a huge schism in the Christian religion. The, the schism happened after the Council of Chalcedon. This council was held in modern-day Turkey, outside of Istanbul. It was attended by 520 bishops and representatives. This council was a it was about a dispute between two belief systems and these two belief systems were really arguing if christ was both human and god or if he was actually purely a god and of course this whole argument actually wasn't purely about christ himself it was actually an argument over the virgin mary some people were believing that the Virgin Mary should not be referred to as a God-bearer, but simply a Christ-bearer. And personally, I'm a little offended by this because, I mean, I guess I guess I'm offended because why can't this argument just be about the nature of Christ? And like, I just feel like it's kind of pointed and <laughs> ultimately sexist that they, of course, like this argument, which is actually about the nature of Christ, has to become about his mother and if she's allowed to be called a God-bearer. Like, it's, it's actually really, it's really pointed. Like, I don't know. Anyway, so there was this big argument. 520 bishops are and their representatives have showed up, which at the time was the biggest attendance of Christian bishops from around the world meeting. And the Coptic Christians of Egypt were offended because they believed that Mary was actually a God-bearer and that Jesus himself was purely the Son of God and did not share traits with humans. Now, I don't know. I have read part of the Beatitudes, which is the part of the Bible where Jesus is talking. I think there is value to the belief that he is both human and with godly powers. I mean, 
he really does talk about how he is the son of God and that everyone is actually the child of God and that his powers are not special and that we all have the ability. We are all one. We all share the light of God within our hearts, blah, 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 blah. I'm paraphrasing. I am not a theologian. I am not an expert on Christianity. I'm just saying, I don't really know. I don't know if I agree with either of these camps because I feel like these arguments are on both sides are a little problematic because on one side, I don't know if they're like really reading the scriptures, but also in their defense, their scriptures were probably less tainted. I mean, the Bible I was reading was in English, which means that it was translated from Aramaic to possibly another ancient language and then translated into Latin, which already at that point, they changed a lot of words. Actually, that's something we'll talk about on a different date, but a lot of words were completely twisted once it was translated into Latin and then eventually translated into English. So there's a lot of dispute about the specifics of the words. And again, the people writing these verses, I mean, there's hearsay, hearsay to begin with. So heresy, hearsay, hmm, who knows? But after this council in 451, there was a huge schism in Christianity. It really set up the Coptic people and the Coptic Orthodox Church as a, a strong center of Christianity because they were actually one of the oldest practicing Christian countries. And what's so fascinating in my next topic is that Egypt was the first country and region to actually set up monastic hierarchies in Christianity. They were the first country to have monasteries, to have priests, and to have a ranking within them. So it started in Alexandria, and from there Christianity spread throughout Egypt, and within a half a century of St. Mark's arrival in Alexandria, it was clear from a fragment of the Gospel of John, which was actually written in Coptic, found in Upper Egypt and can be dated to the first half of the second century. And the New Testament writings from the Oxyrhynchus, Oxyrhynchus in the Middle East, which date around the year 200 AD. So they are actually had scriptures written in their native language. So by the second century, Christianity began to spread to rural areas and the scriptures were translated into local languages and specifically the Coptic language. And at the time, it was simply known as the Egyptian language. By the beginning of the third century, Christians constituted the majority of Egypt's population. And the Church of Alexandria was recognized as one of Christendom's four apostolic sees, second in honor only to the Church of Rome. Now, <clears throat> the papacy didn't start until 754 AD. Hmm. And this is why when I looked into this, I was offended. Because the Pope now is always a white guy from Italy. And the papacy didn't start until 754. And the term Pope, the Great Sea, is actually from the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria. This whole system of having a, a, a hierarchy of priests, the highest of which is a title passed down from St. Mark, this whole practice started in Egypt. They're claiming that the See of Alexandria, the Church of Alexandria, is second in honor only to the Church of Rome. <laughs> oh my god. And obviously, okay, so like, I'll give Rome this. Technically, at the time, Egypt was part of the Roman Empire. So like, there's a loophole there, okay? But like, it's just kind of unfair. I mean, it's actually a lot unfair because... <laughs> This is, this is just so typical at this point 
something that I associate so much with European culture actually is rooted in African culture. And I don't, I don't think it would have to be rude or disrespectful if it was revering the people that started it and keeping their traditions alive. I think it's disrespectful that now every single year since 754 AD that the Pope can only be white. He can only be Italian. And that is disrespectful because it would be different if he was elected from all around the world or if it could be a woman or if it could be someone of a different ethnicity. And that's what's offensive. I mean, this was started in Egypt and it kind of makes you wonder, like, how different would the world be if the papacy was actually still rooted in Egypt and if the center of the Christian world was actually still rooted in Egypt? I think uh, the world would be a very different place. So not long after Christianity and the church of Alexandria was really catching on, um, in 190 AD, a school known as the Catechetical School of Alexandria was erected. It is one of the oldest catechetical schools in the world. Oh gosh, I'm blushing. I'm, I'm feeling like this is an incorrect pronunciation. But it was founded by a scholar known as Pantanius. The School of Alexandria became an important institution of religious learning. There was plenty of very famous theologists, practitioners of Christianity. One man known as Origen, or Origen, if you will, of Alexandria, apparently considered the father of theology. Theology is essentially the study of religion and the study of belief, the study of religious practices. And again, a fascinating topic. I will plan on doing an episode about it. So this guy, Origen, Origen, was the father of theology and also active in the field of commentary and comparative biblical studies. Oh gosh, I would have loved to talk to this guy. However, the scope of the school was not limited to theological subjects. They also taught science, mathematics, mathematics, and humanities, which is pretty progressive, just saying. This was in the year 190. They were teaching science. I mean, who knows how accurate their science were, was, but they were also in Egypt. I don't know. This actually sounds pretty fucking cool. Also, the question and answer method of commentary began there. And listen to this. 15 centuries before Braille existed, this school had a wood carving technique that was used by blind scholars to read and write. 15 centuries before Braille work. That is fucking amazing. Oh, I'm, so, I'm, I'm genuinely pressed I'm impressed. I'm impressed and touched. That is so beautiful. Another major contribu contribution made by the Copts in Egypt to Christianity specifically was the creation and organization of monasticism. Worldwide Christian monasticism stems either directly or indirectly from the Egyptian example. By the end of the 5th century, there were hundreds of monasteries and thousands of cells and caves scattered throughout the Egyptian desert. That's I'm just saying, the OGs, I'm just saying. St. Basil the Great, Archbishop of Caesarea at Mazaka, and the founder and organizer of the monastic movement in Asia Minor, visited Egypt around the year 357, and his monastic rules were followed by the Eastern Orthodox churches. St. Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, came to Egypt while en route to Jerusalem around the year 400 and left details of his experiences in his letters. Saint Benedict, who founded the Benedictine order in the 6th century on the model of Saint Pacomius, who was a member of the Coptic Church. And he actually, Saint Benedict, made his order stricter. Also, the Coptic Christians practice male circumcision as a rite of passage. Oh, let's just soak that in. Apparently as well, a lot of the 
the priests and monasteries there were incredibly meditative. Many Egyptian Christians went to the desert during the third century and remained there to pray and work and dedicate their lives to seclusion and worship of God. This was the beginning of the monastic movement, which was organized by Anthony the Great, St. Paul of Thebes, and the world's first anchorite, St. Macarius the Great and St. Pacomius the Cenobite in the fourth century. Christian monasticism was born in Egypt and was instrumental in the formation of the Coptic Orthodox Church. Character of submission, simplicity, and humility thanks to the teachings and writings of the great fathers of Egypt's deserts. By the end of the 5th century, there were hundreds of monasteries and thousands of cells and caves scattered throughout the Egyptian desert. A great number of these monasteries are still flourishing and have new vocations to this day. This is legendary. Legendary. So let's touch back on this idea of the Pope, the Sea of Alexandria, to be more specific, the major contributions of the title of the See of Alexandria has contributed to the establishment of early Christian theology and dogma, and the history of Christianity was directly spearheaded by Egyptian patriarchs. The Patriarch of Alexandria, also known as the Archbishop of Alexandria in Egypt, historically, this office has included the designation known as Pope, which the etymology of Pope means father, similar to the word abbot, father as in, you know, the head priest. One of the council's decision was to entrust the Patriarch of Alexandria with calculating and annually announcing the exact date of Easter to the rest of the Christian churches. The first three ecumenical councils in the history of Christianity, were headed by Egyptian patriarchs. The ecumenic... I'm just saying this fucking wrong. Ecumenical. Ecumenical. It just sounds wrong. Am I right? <laughs> uh, I, even, I even practiced this before I started recording, and I still can't get it right, so... Technically, an ecumenical council is also referred to as a general council. It's a meeting of bishops and other church authorities who consider and rule on questions of Christian doctrine, administration, discipline, etc. So the term Papa has been, which is a little, it's a little bit freaky if you ask me, but the term Papa has been the designation for the Archbishop of Alexandria and Patriarch of Africa in the See of St. Mark. Just to clarify, See is spelled S-E-E, uh, as opposed to the body of water. So historically, this office held the title of Pope. I'm going to repeat that. The Archbishop of Alexandria, the Patriarch of Africa, the See of St. Mark, has held the title of Pope, and in Greek pronounced Papas, which means Father. And in Coptic, since Pope Heracles of Alexandria, the 13th Alexandrian bishop, who reigned from 227 to 248, was the first to associate Pope with the title of Bishop of Alexandria. And the papacy in Rome didn't start till the 700s. There's a part of me that gets scared talking about these things because I feel like the Vatican is like one of the most powerful private groups of human beings in the world. They're, they're incredibly wealthy and can kind of do what they want. And I just feel like that part of why I've never heard of this is part of the the white supremacist agenda. I'm not trying to knock Christians right now. I have no problem with the Christian religion. I think that there are issues in the way that information is shared. And I'm sad that a lot of religions end up being used as a way to propagate information to large populations of people and are actually used to control minds instead of actually for the intended purpose, which was to help people 
connect with their inner self, connect with the beauty of nature, and connect with the divinity within us all. Anyway, the word Pope derives again from the Greek word father, and in the early centuries of Christianity, this title was applied informally, especially in the East, to all bishops and other senior clergy. In the West, it began to be used particularly for the Bishop of Rome, rather than for bishops in general in the 6th century. So there you go. The Bishop of Rome, which was at that point not necessarily the like the real papacy, but he was known by the, that term. In the 4th to 7th centuries, the Coptic Church gradually expanded due to the Christianization of the Aksumite Empire and two of the three Nubian kingdoms known as Nobatia and Oladia, while the third Nubian kingdom, Makuria, recognized the authority of the Coptic Pope after initially being aligned to the state church of the Roman Empire. Okay, so... We've covered the baseline of the beginnings of the Christian practices set up in Egypt. Just to be clear, at this time, I know I jumped around a little bit chronologically. I'm, um, my notes are definitely a reflection of the chaos that lives inside of my brain and inside of my soul. <laughs> but I just want to touch on before I move on that at this time... In the early years of Christianity, Christianity was being practiced in other parts of the world. It was being practiced in the area of Bethlehem and in the surrounding areas. There was also a huge population in Turkey and in other parts of the Ottoman Empire, which at one point were part of Rome. And in southern India, there was a very large population of Christians that allegedly traveled to southern India after the death of Christ and started practicing in a state in India known as Kerala, located in the southwest. I just want I just wanted to bring that up in passing because Egypt is definitely a very big player in setting up the infrastructure of modern Christianity, but by no means were the only people practicing at the time just just to throw that out there and 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 that other cultures specifically the ones that were practicing christianity from the beginning have slightly different ways of their beliefs and how they practice so the modern christianity that is worldly widespread is worldwide spread i don't i don't know what i'm saying but essentially the infrastructure of what is now christianity that is globally spreading is rooted in the egyptian methodology i'm rambling i have jumped around chronologically but the next huge piece of this story which really makes things really interesting and this is where the curveballs were really thrown in this is where my Wikipedia rabbit hole really just started getting deep. And that is the commencement of the Muslim conquest of Egypt. The conquest of Egypt done by the Muslim Empire was led by the army of Amir ibn al-As. Again, I'm trying my best with my pronunciation. So the conquest took place between the years 1639 and 1646. Or whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. What is my brain doing? 639 and 646. No 16. Strike it from the record. So the conquest was overseen by the Rashidun Caliphate. It ended the seven centuries long period of the Roman reign over Egypt that began in 30 BC. So just as a perspective, allegedly St. Mark came to Egypt in 42, which would be about 70 years, 72 years after the Roman reign in Egypt began. By the time that the Arabic Empire had come in, this would mark about 700 years, give or take, that Rome had occupied Egypt. The Byzantine rule in the country had been shaken as Egypt had conquered and occupied for a decade by the Sassanid, yes, Sassanid Iran in 1618 to 1629, before being recovered by the Byzantine Empire 
Heraclius. So again, basically around this time, Egypt was going through a lot of political and just changes in government. So here they are, the Roman reign is ending, the Byzantine Empire is coming in, they're having a short occupation of Iran. Things were, things were changing quickly at this time. By the year 641, Egypt was conquered by the Arabs, who faced off with the Byzantine army. So local resistance by the Egyptian, however, began to materialize, materialize shortly thereafter and would last until at least the 9th century. Despite the political upheaval, Egypt remained mainly Christian, but Coptic Christians lost their majority status after the 14th century as a result of the intermittent persecution and destruction of the Christian churches there. But, I mean, that's... That's still almost 600 years, close to 700 years of, of the Coptic people and specifically the Coptic religion being the majority. <sighs> but sadly, the persecution of the Coptic Christians included closing and demolishing churches, forced conversion to Islam, and heavy taxes for those who refused to convert. This tax was known as the jizya, and essentially people who were not Muslim had to pay extra money to the caliphate. So <sighs> it's just so sad to hear because again, um, I have no problem with any religion on earth. I It just makes me sad because a lot of conquest, um, conquesting and colonizing is pretty sad and it is a part of human culture and it it's so sad to hear that the native culture was their culture is being destroyed and it's it's just so sad because arguably Egypt is one of the most culturally rich parts of our human history that we have lost a lot of information um about what they were really doing. So during the Muslim conquest of Egypt, this took place during the um, the rule of the Roman emperor Heraclius. The Muslims regulated the Coptic people to the status of dimhi, which essentially means uh, that they were they were the class they were put in, the status that they were in, was pretty limited. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of rules. So I'm going to read some of them. I mean, this is like a, su a super long list. There was rules like there was pro um, prohibition against building new churches or, or places of worship, building new monasteries, or even giving monks a new cell. Hence, it was also forb forbidden to build new synagogues. It is known that the new synagogues were only built after the occupation of Islam. For example, in Jerusalem, similar law prohibiting the building of new synagogues existed in the Byzantine empires, and therefore it wasn't new for all Jewish populations. A lot of Jewish people at the time were actually already used to this law, but it was new for the Christians at the time. There was also prohibition against rebuilding destroyed churches either by day or by night, in their own neighborhoods, or to even in Muslim neighborhoods, they were not allowed to rebuild destroyed churches. Apparently, the, oh, it's so sad. The places of worship that were considered non-Muslim had to be less tall in elevation than a mosque. The house of a non-Muslim could not be taller than the house of a Muslim family. There was prohibition against hanging crosses in churches. Muslims should be allowed to enter churches for shelter either day or night for any reason they needed. Obliging the call of prayer by bell had to be low in, in volume. Uh, there was a prohibition of Christians and Jews against raising their voices at prayer times. There was a prohibition against teaching non-Muslim children the Quran. Christians were forbidden to show their religion in public or to be seen with Christian books or symbols in public, on the roads or in the markets of the Muslims. Palm Sunday and Easter parades were banned. Funerals had to be conducted quietly. 
There was a prohibition against burying non-Muslim dead near Muslims, prohibition against raising a pig next to a Muslim neighbor. Christians were forbidden to sell Muslims alcoholic beverages. Christians were forbidden to provide cover or shelter for spies. There was a prohibition against telling a lie about a Muslim. There was obligation to show deference towards Muslims. If a Muslim wishes to sit, a non-Muslim should rise from his seat to let the Muslim sit. Prohibition against preaching to Muslims in an attempt to convert them from Islam. Prohibition against preaching to Muslims in in an attempt to convert them. Prohibition against preventing the conversion to Islam of someone who wants to convert. Okay, this the list is not even close to be over. Um, <laughs> uh, so just to be clear, I actually don't think that there is anything inherently wrong with Islam. This was specifically this was more of like a political situation they had a group of people had colonized Egypt and a large population had actually moved there and you know I I guess I just wanted to be clear that I do think that there is a difference between politics and government and religion and sadly I think most cultures around the world have merged their politics with their religion and um, that is a that's a different matter than just speaking of a religion and the beliefs of the religion. I I have actually read pieces of the Quran and it is pretty, um, I mean, I genuinely think that most religious scriptures actually all are saying very similar things. They're talking about treating others well, treating your body well, and being a kind and honest person uh, is the best way to commune with God or to commune with the life force that lives within all. I think that's pretty universal and I genuinely believe with those sentiments Uh, you know it's it's it is pretty um sad like reading these rules so the actually before i move on there's one more rule actually that i wanted to talk about which i found i found really interesting so at the time there was also a rule that there was an obligation to identify non-muslims such as a clipping of the heads or forelock. So basically they had to like clip their hair a certain way and always dressing in the same clothing wherever they go. So they they basically had to wear a kind of belt known as a zunar around their waist. Christians were to wear blue belts or turbans. The Jewish population was to wear yellow belts or turbans. And the Zoroastrians were to wear black belts or turbans and Samaritans to wear red belts or turbans. Now, I don't want to get into a super long tangent, but um, Zoroastrianism predates Christianity, and actually a lot of practices within the Christian religion actually mirror some of the monastic infrastructure set up by the Zoroastrian religion, which was practiced a lot in the Middle East, but also in parts of Egypt. Also, I learned that Samaritanism was actually a religion, and I did not know that. I thought Samaritan meant citizen, because people always say, I'm a good Samaritan. So I thought it was, I mean, I never Googled it, but I just assumed Samaritan was a synonym for citizen or, you know, whatever. Anyway, fun fact, Samaritan is actually a religion, and at the time, they were associated with the color red. This is like... uh, pretty depressing um really depressing the other the other thing which is really sad is that the local and native population of egypt known as the cops were not allowed to speak in their native tongue and were forced to learn arabic that's kind of the nail in the coffin of destroying a culture to not allow them to speak in their language and it's really it's really really sad <laughs> and really heartbreaking through all of this this created a very interesting climate obviously as the years were passing the coptic people became less of a majority and it created a, a very interesting pride and very specific experience of the native Egyptians known as the Coptic people. I think it's kind of like a cliche, but there is, 
I don't know if it's like a saying, but there is kind of this ironic joke that I've I've seen played out through history that sometimes being persecuted and having your religion almost be illegal makes you more devout. There's a fascinating book by Kurt Vonnegut called Cat's Cradle. And in this book, there's this religion that's practiced on this remote island. And on the island, the everyone practices the religion, but the religion is illegal. And by the end of the book, the guy, this guy ends up visiting the island and he has a crazy experience, but he ends up meeting this prophet who started this whole religion. And he asks him, like, he says, why is the religion illegal? Every year they uh, sacrifice someone and they hang someone from a metal hook because the religion is illegal. And essentially this guy who started the religion says, you know, people don't follow religions unless they're against the law. People aren't devout. If they're comfortable and you're allowed to practice it, people don't take it seriously and they kind of, they're just going through the motions. But by making it illegal, people are uh, are just more devout. And obviously, I mean, that's a fictional book, but I thought that was a really interesting um, observation because I think in a sense it is true. I think something about you know, being having having your back against the wall forces you to take your scriptures so much more to heart. So, well, again, the other thing to take into account is it's not just the Christian religion, but also the identity of being a native Egyptian. Because by the the fourteenth century, they had lost the majority of the population, and so as time continued, a movement known as Pharaohism came about. Now, technically, that term pharaohism came about in the 20s and 30s. However, there is examples of the idea of pharaohism already existing. Pharaohism, as in deriving from the word pharaoh, refers to pride and an Egyptian, native Egyptian nationalism. So in ancient Egypt, Egyptians came subsequently under the influence of brief successions of several foreign rulers, as we discussed. Throughout those years, they did take on Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, now having new language known as Egyptian Arabic. By the 4th century, the majority of Egyptians had converted to Christianity, and in 535, the Roman Emperor Justinian ordered the Temple of Isis at Philae closed, which marked the formal end of the ancient religion of Egypt. So just as a reminder, I don't think I actually touched on this, but while a lot of Egyptians were practicing Christianity, there were still Egyptians practicing their ancient religion. And in fact, ancient Egypt, there wasn't actually a term for religion. It was a lot of their cultural beliefs. So apparently a lot of the early Christians were actually infusing some of their beliefs that came from ancient Egypt and infusing them in with Christianity. Like I mentioned, by the year 535, even Rome was kind of taking a supremacist take on Christianity and they were closing down what they were considering pagan, closing down temples and places of worship around the world that were not deemed Christian. And that's kind of like a... It's like a divine comedy, right? Because I think it's wrong to force your religion on others and to force your culture on others. But it's funny that cultures that force their religion on others end up getting other religions forced on them. I don't know. I don't know. Human human history is a cornucopia of chaos, and um, I'm just I'm just observing. <laughs> okay, so. During the Middle Ages, the monuments of ancient Egypt were often destroyed. The reasoning was a term called jahiliya, um, known as barbarous ignorance. Obviously, in the Islamic faith, there is a belief that iconography is worshiping a false god. And there's a belief that like the, there is no face of God, or even the Prophet Muhammad, his, his appearance is meaningless. It's what the words that he shared. So um, the Roman Empire was destroying things because of their distaste for paganism, but also 
the Islamic Empire did believe that iconography of any kind was essentially worshipping false gods. So the majority of the destruction of the ruins of Egypt occurred in the 13th and 14th century. It was also a time of floods, famine, and plagues leading some people to believe that Allah was punishing the Egyptians for the continued existence of these relics of a time of Jahiliya. Now, what's interesting about that is that a lot of the Muslim population thought that the famines and floods were happening because of them worshipping, you know, having the barbarous ignorance. But the Egyptian population at the time was convinced that because they were destroying these magical sites that were associated with the Egyptian religion, that they were actually cursing themselves. The most notable act of destruction in the Middle Ages was the tearing down of the statue of the goddess of Isis in 1311, located in Fastat, and the destruction of the Temple of Memphis in 1350, which inspired much relief when it was not discovered that the evil eye or the eye of Horus in the temple walls did not cause the deaths of those destroying the temple. So apparently at the time, the Egyptians were convinced that by destroying these relics that these people would die. It got to a, a point where some of the, the Muslim population was starting to fear a lot of these relics and so a lot of them were were experiencing relief when they weren't dying but there was other very bizarre things happening there was uh stories that the sphinx and the pyramids of giza held great power because these objects were seen to have magical powers and despite the fact that the quran completely disagrees with these ideas by the year 1378, it was reported that nominally Muslim peasants would burn incense at night in front of the Sphinx while uttering prayers, which were said to empower the Sphinx to speak, which led a Sufi holy man to attack the Sphinx. Um, local legends claim that the attack on the Sphinx led to a massive sandstorm at Giza, which only ended with the holy man's lynching. Which is fucking nuts. I also read in other sources that apparently they believed um, that if they tore down the pyramids of Giza or touched the Sphinx, that the street would run red with blood. So that there was there was stories that were really scaring the Muslim people that these these buildings really did hold power. At the time, there was also a rumor that was being spread by the Egyptian people because. The Quran actually singled out a specific pharaoh from antiquity, the pharaoh that was talked about in the book of Exodus. This was the pharaoh that allegedly had enslaved the Israelites, and he was kind of the poster child of this concept of jahiliya, meaning that he was basically like the poster child of barbarous ignorance, of extravagance, of human exploitation, wealth, grandiosity. So because of this pharaoh, some of the Egyptians actually started spreading rumors that the pharaoh was a ruler from the Islamic empire. However, that, that's not possible if this pharaoh, if the, if the story of Exodus is true, it would have happened in ancient Egypt and he would in fact be Egyptian or, you know, most likely from some part of Africa to have been pharaoh. But like I said, the mere fact of causing riots was a reason for both the pyramid and the sphinx to be preserved. But I truly wonder, I truly wonder what Egypt must have looked like before the Roman Empire and the Arabic empires reigned because so many relics were destroyed. Ugh, it's just such a bummer. It's such a bummer. So, like I said, the pyramids and the sphinx specifically were not torn down. And according to a writer, a Muslim writer from the 13th century, his name was Jamal al-Din al-Idrisi, he actually wrote a warning that to destroy the pyramids would unleash dark supernatural forces that would cause such carnage that horses would wade in human blood, leading him to the conclusion that the pyramids were best left alone. <laughs> That's fucking epic. So, like I mentioned, there was rumors that Egyptians were saying that 
different caliphs or Sufi saints had actually built some of the sites. And obviously these weren't true, but it did help some of these, these sites to remain intact, remain intact because people actually thought they were true. And so there was some pride taken into the construction of these. It makes me think how many oral traditions have been altered as a survival mechanism so that their own culture wasn't fully erased. But in doing so, they had to change their own beliefs. And so uh, I, I, I do really wonder what the oral traditions must have been like before these kind of regimes were taking over because, you know, you have to change your story to keep some of your relics alive. So fun fact, according to the Muslim tradition, Muhammad, the great prophet, actually married a Coptic woman known as Maria al-Kibitia. Now, I don't know how true this is because according to some of those rules that I mentioned that was instated by the Islamic empire, the Coptic people were not allowed to have Arab sounding last names. So like the A-L, the Maria al-Kibitia, apparently that was not allowed. But according to the tradition, he married a Copt. Again, I'm reading this all via websites, so I am not necessarily claiming all of this to be true. I'm finding it online. I'm doing my best. Sadly, because of this huge change in language and because that the locals were actually having to speak now Egyptian Arabic, the knowledge of the hieroglyphs was lost from the 6th century onwards up until 1822, which is not that long ago. 1822 is exactly 200 years ago. Anyway, in 1822, a Frenchman, Jean-François Champollion, <laughs> um, he deciphered the Rosetta Stone, and the memory of, the, of ancient Egypt was that of an impressive civilization which built various monuments whose precise meaning had long been lost at the time, and it had limited the extent of popular identification with it. And apparently, the caliph Muhammad Ali the Great, who was an, Alban Alban an Albanian tobacco merchant turned Ottoman governor, or Ali, he ruled in Egypt, and he ruled with an iron hand from 1805 until his death in 1849, and sadly, he had no interest in the ruins of ancient Egypt except as a source of gifts for foreign leaders. <sighs> One of Muhammad Ali's official, known as Rifaya al-Tatwati, um, persuaded him in 1836 to embark on preserving Egypt's heritage uh, by ending the plundering of sites in Egypt to create a museum to display Egypt's treasures instead of letting them be taken to Europe. So only in 1836, which was less than 200 years ago, did the people ruling Egypt actually start preserving their culture. The Roman Empire took over in 30 BC, and now here we are in 1836. That's 1800 years of destroying and giving away relics of ancient Egypt. Obviously, the Coptic people still exist. They still live in Egypt. But as time has gone on, you know, now Egypt is very popular. I think when people think of the ancient world, you know, the pyramids of Giza is right up there. But I just want to remind all of us, remind myself that it wasn't until 1822 that the Rosetta Stone was discovered. So ancient Egypt was uh, in large part a mystery and also I think incredibly undermined with how influential it was over the entire world and how much of Egyptian culture has saturated into modern culture and modern European culture. This was actually, I mean, a kind of a brief overview of Copticism, the Coptic language, the Coptic ethnicity and and Coptic Christianity, but I did want to make this one of my early episodes to kind of plant a seed in everyone's mind about the lens in which we learn history. And I think it's really easy to forget that history is written by the quote unquote winners, you know, history is written by the colonizers. 
I don't want to blame entire populations of people because politics are usually governed by a very small group of people. And in the large majority of human history, usually great rulers make pretty, um, you know, crazy, I don't want to say crazy, but they make a lot of decisions that end up exploiting human life. And like, that's a generalization. But you know, colonization and conquest often only benefits the small group of people that are doing the colonizing. And they're often destroying and hurting large populations. And long story short, this is a reminder. And for me, a groundbreaking it almost feels like discovery that Egypt is really the incubation of Christianity. And I'm not a practicing Christian. I was not raised Christian, but I find beauty in all religions. And I'm surprised, but also I, I feel like it actually all makes sense because for a long time, Christianity was one of the fastest spreading religions in the world. And I, I used to genuinely not understand why. And I think that the native people of Egypt and the beliefs that extend from their ancient beliefs were that magic was actually a part of life. They did not believe in religion. They had a belief that magic was something that was harnessable from thin air and that with the right practices and right methodology, one could harness extra life force energy. And they breathed life into Christianity. So, Again, that was a brief. Again, I am not an expert. I'm just a dude Googling some shit. My name is Annabelle. Thank you for listening. Please, if you have any comments, if you have any information about this topic, if there's a topic that you want covered, if you have a story that your grandparents, mothers, uncles, friends told you as a kid, please send me an email at esotericaandnonsense at gmail.com. Please follow me on Instagram, esotericaandnonsense.